So how many of us, not all that long ago, went out and bought Christmas or Hanukkah or Yule gifts? Yeah, everybody just about was part of that flurry of fun. How many first found out what the recipients wanted so that we could give them the right thing? Most hands. How many dread the holiday advertising and its effects especially upon the children in our lives? Oh, we have hands waving on that one. How many dread the advertising's effects upon ourselves? Yeah. This is part four of our series on the seven deadly sins. We've talked about pride and sloth and gluttony. We'll be getting to lust, envy, and anger. Today we get to consider greed. Let me start with a fast recap of my basic presuppositions. First, sin, although not a popular word amongst Unitarian Universalists, does refer to a universal human experience. Second, that experience is of the twisting or the perversion of that which is or should be good, creative, beneficial. Third, Sin is relational, has to do with how we are connected within ourselves, with others, with the world, and with God, however we understand that metaphor. And therefore, finally, sin is the condition of being out of balance, out of harmony, out of perspective, out of right relationship with oneself, with other people, with life itself, with God. The seven deadly sins simply describe the seven most popular ways we humans have developed of keeping ourselves off balance. Traditional theology defines greed as the inordinate desire for temporal goods. And that's important. It's the inordinate desire, not the goods themselves. As is said elsewhere, it is the love of money, not money itself, that is the root of all evil. Greed, like all the seven deadly sins, is a perversion of what should have been something good. In this case, greed is the perversion of the goodness of the material world. Greed is self-serving. It is, at its basest level, a selfish sense of personal entitlement that does not take into account the needs or the rights of others. Anyone remember Leona Helmsley? Yeah, some do. The uh, queen of the palace, the, uh, the great uh, hotel queen, and doing her queen of the palace shtick while contemptuously proclaiming that only little people are foolish enough to be stuck paying taxes. And we've got more recent examples like the Koch brothers who seem to feel entitled to everything and Donald what's-his-name and, <laughs> and others, but the examples needn't be quite so extreme. The voter who acknowledges the need for school repairs, for example, or improved programs or new teaching supplies, but votes against the referendum that would enable a district to pay for them because it would add the cost of a really nice night out to the annual property tax bill. He's not going to win prizes for altruism. 
the voter who could, in fact, afford that tax increase, but refuses to consider it, not because of a difference in funding philosophy, but rather because it would take money out of my pocket and give it to someone else's kids, and I don't see a clear benefit for me. Well, that person, too, is choosing the path of greed. Greed confuses I want with I deserve. I'm not saying that those who are paid above the poverty level have not earned their incomes. The problem is that the greedy never seem to acknowledge that anyone else or anything else had a part in their apparent success and might have a claim upon some of the fruits of that success. When some sports or other entertainment figures earn more than the gross national income of some small countries, when companies move out of communities after using up the tax incentives and the infrastructure perks they received when they first moved in, when CEOs get annual salaries at the same time their workers are being dropped or pensions are being withheld or benefits canceled so stockholders get a better return on their investments, when I want this becomes I deserve this. There are a lot of small and not necessarily willing contributors who are being ignored and discounted. They make do with much less so that the most prominent can have even more. Connected to the obvious selfishness is greed's willingness to ruin something for everyone else. The desire to take out the last tree to harpoon the last whale, to burn the last acre of rainforest, to drill on the last pristine tundra, to dump pollutants in the last clean stream or beneath the last untouched sacred hills, to fill the last wetland, to build on the last of the open land, to sell the horn of the last rhinoceros. All this is the determination of greed to take it because it's there. It's there now, and one had better grab it before someone else does. There's a bitter cynicism to greed that only feeds the cycle. Someone's going to profit from this. That someone might as well be me. If someone else suffers, well, tough. They were going to suffer anyway when that someone else came in. I'm here first, I win. I'd be a fool, says Greed, to leave this valuable asset here for someone else. Greed actually refuses to see or even to acknowledge the existence of others who are affected by Greed's decisions. Greed has been described as a failure of sympathy a decision not to enter into the experience of those who might be harmed by one's actions. Greed rationalizes harm done as just the way things are, or it dismisses, it dehumanizes, it even demonizes those others in order to make their exploitation and abuse acceptable. Greed puts poison air spewing plants in neighborhoods of people who are economically powerless and doesn't see the people, the children who are hurt. Greed has no trouble sending lead-filled water to the children of an entire city.
greed doesn't see the people. And in this failure of sympathy, greed is most dangerous to the common good when it tries to take on the mantle of virtue. They had no source of income until we came along is not an uncommon refrain from corporations who go into third world countries and set up sweatshops, often employing very, very young children. And it may have been true that they didn't have much source of income. What isn't talked about is how little need there was for a monetary income before the native foodstuffs were confiscated for export, or the native waters polluted by chemical plants, or the native crafts made irrelevant by the import of unneeded but well-marketed products from other areas also under attack. Greed wants to reshape the entire world for its benefit. It has been suggested by a number of writers that greed differs from outright theft only in that it is protected by systems of power and privilege. And so it is technically legal, although it is often less than honest and very often immoral. Consider, for example, the failure of our government to reevaluate the giving away of federal lands to mining, lumbering, and ranching interests, selling the birthright of all the people to a powerful few for the sake of the benefits in the form of campaign contributions and a willingness not to oppose other pet projects that those politicians receive in return. I've done political lobbying, and I discovered very quickly that although the legislators down in Springfield would listen politely to me, after all, I was a woman, I was in full clerics, I was on crutches at the time, so refusing to see me would have been dreadfully politically incorrect. <laughs> but they weren't much interested in the cause I was asking them to consider until they heard that I had the backing of the AFL-CIO. I'm union. The money meant more than the merits of the legislation I was working for. We got our legislation passed. We do have the best government money can buy. I know I helped buy it. Greed is contagious, which helps explain why it's so hard to eradicate. Others who also want much and hope one day by fair means or foul to have much, not enough, mind you, but much, won't fight against greed because they hope to benefit themselves from the systems of power and privilege that shore up the greedy. Greedy people and greed also confuse I want and I need. Greed thinks that the one who dies with the most toys really did win. Greed values having over being and thinks that human worth truly is a matter of possessing more than one needs in order to be comfortable. Our culture very sadly reinforces this, and it's not an easy piece of programming to overcome. The ongoing message from our consumer driving, which is not the same as consumer driven, our consumer driving economy is that if you don't have this product or this service, you are obviously less than those who do. The more you have, the more you consume, the more you are worth, 
And so total possessions, total annual rate of consumption, net financial value give us our best and most reliable guide to a person's inherent value, or so greed insists. Greed thinks material things will provide a level of comfort and security that are not, in fact, guaranteed. It fails to see where the real value of these materials actually lies. That parable in Luke's gospel tells of a wealthy and prudent man who was doing everything right by the standards of his circle of friends, by acceptable economic standards, doing everything right to take control of his future. God, and one assumes Jesus as well, regarded the man as an unfortunate fool, not for taking prudent steps in his life, but for thinking that he was in control and for failing to see where true wealth does lie. And finally, greed presents itself as fierce and powerful, but it actually reveals a fragile self, insecure, unimaginative, possessive, fearful, with each of the seven deadly sins, what happens when what is basically good falls out of balance is that the self experiences itself as empty and tries to fill itself back up, not with those goods that would give life, but rather with emotions, experiences, beliefs, material things that are not bad in and of themselves, but which are not enough to nurture the spirit. When we give in to greed, we are trying to fill our spiritual selves with material things. We are trying to force matter to do what it cannot do and failing to let it give us the gifts it does possess and offer. <coughs> greed gives valid material concerns a bad name. And this is probably a lot more important than any of what I've said so far. The human experience of ambition, which encourages creativity, experimentation, risk. The human, the basic biological tendency to respond well when rewarded. The human tendency to be competitive, to want to be better. The human desire for increased comfort, security, all those things we put under the heading of a good life. Those things are not in and of themselves evil or misguided or wrong. They are all part of our natural human being. They all have their positive qualities and they all can be abusive and abused. We live in a world in which spirit, energy, manifests through what we interpret as matter, as things, and it doesn't make any ultimate difference whether it is a rare tank the armadillo beanie baby or a three-carat diamond or the sun setting on one of those perfect evenings when the colors in the clouds can make you cry for the joy of having eyes to see with. It's all a manifestation, a creation, an embodiment of energy 
the emergence into the gross physical realm of universal processes that we then endow with meaning. There's a temptation to say that one is inherently and obviously superior to another, but that's not necessarily true. That sunset is meaningless to a child who cannot see. But that tank the armadillo, coming from a beloved grandparent, could well take on a heart value that no number of diamonds could equal. Stuffed toys and gemstones, sunsets and moonrises, swing sets and bankrolls are regarded very differently by different ways of understanding and valuing the balance of the realms of matter and spirit. Matter matters. There are, of course, religious and philosophical schools that downplay that, that argue that matter is illusion or a trap for the infinitely superior spirit. But friends, ours is not one of them. We live in the world. We have a responsibility to pay attention, to act appropriately in the world. Our theology as Unitarian Universalists is deeply incarnational. A purely spiritual religion is a purely spurious religion. Those are the words of Unitarian Universalist theologian James Luther Adams. Our religious heritage sees the world as good, sees creation as inherently good, believes and has for generations believed in what the former Dominican priest Matthew Fox describes as not original sin, but original blessing. We do not regret that we are embodied beings living in a world we experience as physical. We celebrate that. And our most truly faithful response to the gift of life in this world of matter is a song of thanksgiving and living a life that acknowledges our gratitude for what we have received and also showing our willingness to share, to serve, to give to others, to give back in some small way into the universe something of what it has given to us. This material world is our home, and we regard it as a good, a wonderful place to be. It is our ability to perceive, to appreciate, to appropriately value that goodness that is perverted by the human experience of greed. When that ability to see the values within and beyond their particular embodiments, their particular incarnations, is lost is skewed, is thrown out of balance, that all too often we get trapped, not just in greed, from which, being human, we are none of us exempt, but also in a paralyzing fear of succumbing to greed. Greed and the fear of being greedy both are poisonous to the soul. We generally prefer to pretend we are distant from the taint of greed, but how many of us bought lottery tickets just a couple of weeks ago? Your entire church staff went out together to buy lottery tickets. We had a collection of numbers. We promised each other that when we won, no one would quit. We're going to leave the church in the lurch, as it were. Everyone got an equal share, one for all and all for one. 
and we would tithe. 10% would go to the church or some other worthy organization. How could God not have let us win? <laughs> With an offer like that, my belief in a personal response of God gets fainter and fainter with every such experience. But we like to pretend that we would never be greedy. And in that refusal to look honestly and compassionately at our own issues around the meaning of the material world in which we live, we wind up feeling guilty about what we have, embarrassed about what we want, threatened by the perceived needs and requests made by others, threatened and pressured and devalued, not by what others think of us, but by what we are afraid they are thinking because we are thinking it ourselves. Material goods in their proper balance with the things of the spirit are life-affirming, empowering, creative blessings. We get into trouble when we lose our sense of perspective, when we mistakenly identify with our possessions and confuse who we are with how much we have when we value others for their material resources rather than for their inherent human worth and for the values they reveal in their living, when we assume others are misvaluing us. If we would overcome both our greed and our fear of greed, I'd like to suggest a few questions we might ask ourselves to guide us in the endeavor. And first, most importantly, what gives you joy? By this, I don't mean the feeling that you've met someone's expectations or you've done what you should have done, but what fills you? What experiences, what relationships, what things astonish and amaze you, comfort, console you? fill you with awareness that you are, in fact, grateful to be alive? What does joy mean in your life? What would you need, if anything, within the realm of the possible, that you don't already have in order to have more joy? If there is something you need, how could you meet that need? Secondly, how aware are we really of the blessedness we already experience? Such awareness helps us to distinguish between real needs and those manufactured, externally imposed needs that the folks who used to stuff my morning paper with advertising seemed to believe they wanted me to be thinking I needed. What do we already have? Is it worth increasing? How would we do that? Third, can we be more conscious of the ever-expanding circles of the influence of our decision? When I choose to do something that I think affects only me, I need to think about who else might be affected. How can I feel truly connected to those who are so far without names or faces for me? Might it not be healing, at the very least, to remember that those unknowns are, in fact, people, and that my life, my choices, will touch them, just as their lives, without my awareness, 
touch me. There is no them. There is only us. And finally, can we choose differently and more deliberately in our lives? What would it be like if we were to choose contentment with what we have, which might lead to greater contentment with who we are, rather than a mindless, driving ambition for more? What would it mean if we were to choose to pursue shared dreams of a larger appreciation and celebration of beauty and creativity and love, the things of both matter and spirit that lead to joy? Be greedy for what gives you true joy. And it's not a warehouse full of corn. As I extinguish the flame of our congregation's chalice, take that flame, each of you, into the chalice of your own heart. Carry its message of hope, of love, of courage, out into the world that needs each one of you. Go forth together in love and be peace. Blessed be and amen.